Hey, Courtney. Hey, Ashley. Do you love hearing about true crime and history and other fun stuff? Oh, you know I do. Well, good, because that's what we talk about every week on the Cult of Domesticity podcast, so I'm glad that you enjoy it. Oh, I probably should have known that. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Tell them where to find us. Well, we're available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, and other fun places. New episodes come out pretty much every Thursday. So be there or be square. Berlin, 1944. The war was most definitely lost, and yet to even speak of a German defeat was considered a direct betrayal to Adolf Hitler's Third Reich. Nevertheless, in the autumn of 1944, the situation looked mighty grim for the forces of Nazi-dominated Germany. Heinrich Himmler, who at that point had initiated the final solution responsible for the deaths of six million Jews, among other historical atrocities, had proved to be Hitler's greatest ally, widely recognized as the Fuhrer's right-hand man. The supreme leader of the SS knew that they needed to turn the tides of war, and so Himmler looked to the methods employed by Soviet guerrillas. In that cold autumn, while Europe burned, Himmler devised Operation Werewolf, a name taken from a melodramatic revenge novel that was part of the German far-right's literary canon, and also because, come on, the name is literally Werewolf, how could you not? The werewolves in question were teams of guerrilla soldiers who would infiltrate and then operate behind enemy lines, and so propaganda among the masses. And even when talking about Nazis, this is where it gets a bit scary. Though historians still debate the full extent of werewolf, there is evidence that the point of the operation wasn't simply a new form of war tactic to use against the Allies, it was a contingency plan. The werewolves weren't just going behind enemy lines, they were essentially Nazi sleeper cells who had worked towards the auspices of the Third Reich ideology in the case of a German defeat, at which point they would rise up again. In other words, they were basically Hydra from Marvel Comics, or the First Order from Star Wars. Of course, in order to successfully run a clandestine operation like Werewolf, you need serious funding. Most of the Nazis' financial assets, which they had stolen and looted from anybody they deemed enemies of the state, were stored in the Reichsbank in Berlin, a city that was about to be invaded by the Allied forces. The Nazis needed to move millions upon millions of Reichsmarks and solid gold bullion to sympathetic financial institutions outside of the country. This would also mean the usage of more desperate hideaways, such as mine shafts, caves, and secret bunkers concealed within the thick Bavarian forests. No option was off the table if it meant keeping the loot away from the American, British, French, and Russian swine. Though modern historians have speculated an amount of at least $8.7 billion in U.S. dollars, to this day, the exact total value of what the Nazis had in gold bullion is unknown. And mostly because a good chunk of it completely disappeared. Those that subscribe to the theory that Operation Werewolf had serious post-war intentions believe that the Raubgold, or stolen gold, was hidden explicitly to finance these secretive efforts. One of the key players behind this alleged operation was Heinrich Himmler's favorite deputy, Ernst Kaltenbrunner, who was a real piece of work himself. Kaltenbrunner was given the nigh-insurmountable task of emptying the Reichsbank of loot and sending it on a train bound for the Alps, where it would be safe from ally reach. The Alpine border was also where werewolf operatives were going to be stationed, and they would put that gold to good use, eventually. 
Expectedly, things did not go entirely according to plan. Around spring of 1945, the Allies advanced into German home turf. Hitler tasked his faithful right hand, Himmler, with taking charge of the Army Group Upper Rhine and Army Group Vistula, which Himmler failed to manage spectacularly, dealing a devastating blow to Nazi forces. The Fuhrer was furious and had Himmler replaced. Puns. At wit's end, the leader of the SS did the unthinkable. Himmler decided to broker peace talks with the Allies, and under Hitler's nose at that. But nothing gets by old Adolf, and when he found out, Hitler ordered his arrest. Though Himmler tried to flee the country, he was captured by the Brits, and while in custody, he committed suicide on May 23rd of that year. Good riddance. Himmler's agent, Kaltenbrunner, likewise tried to make a break for it by taking refuge in Althausi, a picturesque resort town in Austria near Lake Toplitz, and the location of one of the mines where Hitler had hidden his stolen artwork. If we're to thank Kaltenbrunner, a truly despicable man with any good deed, it's in that he directly defied Hitler's orders to have the mine blown up, lest the artwork be returned to the Bolsheviks and Jews, as Hitler put it. Enforcing the miners to cancel the demolition, Kaltenbrunner spared such masterpieces as Michelangelo's Madonna of Bruges and the Ghent altarpiece, which you may remember from the episode on the Just Judges. We're coming full circle, people. On the 12th of May, only a few weeks before Himmler would take his life in captivity, Kaltenbrunner was captured by the Allies. At first, he gave them a false identity as a doctor. And he might have gotten away with this, too, if not for the intervention of his mistress, who saw him as he was being led away and called out his name. Then she went to give him a big, inconvenient embrace. Not now, honey. Kaltenbrunner's cover had been blown. He would remain in Allied custody until the fall of 1946, where he would be tried at Nuremberg, the final justice dispensed to those who had committed the greatest atrocities of World War II. Turns out, Kaltenbrunner happened to be the highest-ranking member of the SS who had survived the war and been captured. To say the least, the Allies were very eager to convict him. And that they did. Only 15 days after he was found guilty of war crimes, which he completely disavowed, by the way, he was executed by hanging. But he may have taken a secret to his grave. A pretty big secret, too. While Allied investigators were inspecting Kaltenbrunner's villa, they found something unusual in the vegetables, specifically his beets. Nature's Candy was concealing a chest containing 76 kilograms of six gold bars. Kaltenbrunner had pocketed a small sum of the cargo he'd been tasked with spiriting away. Thus, the question remained, where the bleep was the rest of it? Well, turns out there's multiple answers to that question. This episode is going to be the closest thing I ever get, hopefully, to a listicle. So with that being said, I'll be examining the top five most likely candidates, starting with... Lake Toplitz sits within the Austrian Alps near Salzburg, which sounds lovely if it wasn't part of a range with a name that translates to the Dead Mountains. This is because vegetation can't grow there, as the landscape around this region contains a high salt content just like some people I know. Anyway, back to Hitler. The German army made good use of Lake Toplitz during the war, testing torpedoes and missiles off of its beaches. It was also a pretty nice spot to vacation, because nobody is saltier than a bunch of Nazis. But it's the war's end when Lake Toplitz slips into legend and infamy. Ernst Kaltenbrunner, with Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels' help, was in charge of sending the Reichsbank's gold bullion and monetary assets into seclusion. An eyewitness report spoke of Nazi cargo trucks heading for the lake in May of 1945. Here, they were said to have sunk the cargo into the lake, with the hope that it would never be recovered. It's the whole never-to-be-recovered thing that led to some questions concerning what is actually down there. But these reports were certainly good enough for the U.S. Special Forces to get involved. Now, Lake Toplitz might be beautiful, but it's also dangerous. It is roughly 338 feet deep, and due to its salinity, not much more than bacteria and certain species of aquatic worm can live below 20 meters. 
This is also where would-be divers run into the problem of the logs. Fallen trees have accumulated at the halfway mark, about 100 feet or so before the bottom, and they float there because of the salt buoyancy. This makes travel below this log cover not entirely impossible, but most definitely dangerous, as the U.S. Navy discovered for themselves on their attempt to plunder the bottom of the lake in 1947. One of their divers became tangled in the log cover and drowned. Sadly, my online research has yet to turn up a name for this unfortunate soul, so if any listeners out there come upon the answer, please feel free to tweet at me. To recap, you have a spooky lake in the middle of nowhere and a bunch of locals who are 100% certain the Nazis were throwing mysterious freight into the water, which definitely sunk below the inaccessible log layer. It's enough intrigue and danger to start attracting serious attention and spreading rumors. Some said the lake was cursed, mostly because it had begun to rack up a body count of unexperienced and unlucky explorers who drowned trying to pull gold from the depths. Others said it wasn't boxes of gold at the bottom, but boxes containing our old friend, the Amber Room. One gentleman, citing that the Nazis had used the shoreline to test experimental weaponry, said that he'd seen an actual UFO at the bottom of the lake. The tantalizing and deadly mysteries of Toplitz were enough to attract the attention of the famous German magazine Der Stern, who had the funds and the expertise to bankroll a mission to trawl the depths. Rational thinkers called it a pointless effort, but sure enough, Der Stern's team did bring something up from the depths. It wasn't gold exactly, but it had value, sort of. You see, Back during the war, Adolf Hitler, who loved his harebrained schemes, devised Operation Bernhard, which was a mission to destabilize the British economy with the introduction of foreign currency and stamps for some reason. He had the Nazis build printing presses and serious operations to carry out this task. And this wasn't the first time they pulled something off like this either. They pulled a similar stunt in Portugal in order to get the country to fund their war efforts. Those wacky Nazis, right? The thing about counterfeiting currency is that there's ways to trace it back to people. And when you're losing a war with the enemy right on your heels, you don't want to leave a paper trail. So the Nazis chucked the faux currency into Lake Toplitz and hightailed it out of the Alps. You'd think that would put an end to the rumors that there were cargo boxes stashed with gold at the bottom of Lake Toplitz. But then, none other than Ernst Kaltenbrunner's aging nephew, Michel, decided to stir the pot. He insisted that his evil uncle had most definitely thrown solid gold ingots into the lake. I don't know about you, but if I was the descendant of Nazi leadership, I'd do my best to stay out of the limelight, or even, I don't know, change my last name. But you do you, Michal. So, people kept looking, and some kept dying, and some actually did turn up a few new interesting things, thanks to new and exciting equipment, such as remote-controlled submersibles and miniature submarines, which sound really cool. In 1983, German biologists found more fake currency, the remains of the explosive experimental weaponry the Nazis had tested offshore, as well as a new species of worm. Even into the 2000s, people kept looking for the treasure. One team came up with a mysterious iron box, which looked promising, until they popped open the lid to discover it was full of beer bottle caps. Someone had tossed it into their lake, possibly decades before, for the sole reason of trolling some explorers. If anybody knows the identity of this individual, please have them come forward so I can give them a high five. After another mission sponsored by the Simon Wiesenthal Foundation, in the hopes of discovering stolen bank bonds that belonged to Holocaust victims, the Austrian government declared that there was nothing left to find at the bottom of the lake, which was kind of a disappointing climax to a 70-year-old mystery. Of course, not everybody believes this to be the case, and Lake Toplitz remains a hotspot for treasure hunters. The Reich's higher-ups were not the only parties responsible for hiding Nazi assets during the close of World War II. Though it is now part of modern-day Poland, Lower Silesia was once an extension of the Reich's Sudetenland, which they took during that invasion of Poland you might have heard about. This part of the Reich was enshrouded in thick forests alongside a region called the Owl Mountains, and it is here where we get some of the most History Channel-esque conspiracy theories from the end of World War II. 
The Owl Mountains were the location of an underground bunker construction complex called the Giant, which, depending on who you ask, was just going to be a massive munitions hub or a place to test out Hitler's time-traveling device, often referred to as the Nazi Bell. Your call. Within this region is also the Polish city of... Oh boy. Here we go. Wrocław. In 1944, the city was presided over by an officer of the German army named Herbert Klaus. Klaus was captured after the war, and when he squealed, he had a very interesting story to tell. Klaus's superior officers had Klaus direct the collection of all valuables and Nazi financial assets in that area, including heaps of gold ingots. The treasures were then sealed up inside iron containers, relatively nondescript save for identifying serial numbers, and hidden within the vaults of the police headquarters for safekeeping. As the Red Army advanced to take control of the town, the chests were loaded onto a train and sent beyond enemy lines. Close had been injured due to a fall from a horse and could not be there personally to supervise the transport, but he assumed the train was going to end up in safe hands. Spoilers, it didn't. All that we know is that if Close's story is true, then the train in question never made it to its destination. Due to a combination of air raids and the oncoming Russian army, the train had to stop in a tunnel within the district of Titling, located within the forested mountainy Bavarian region. During this time, the Russians managed to intercept a Nazi military transmission which made reference to some known objects being transported by train. The radio transmission said, Command executed. Transport of guards taken over and stored in BSCHW. Ask for further instructions. BSCHW appeared to be a codename. The B at the start and the W at the end of the line was speculated to mean Bayerischgewald, or the Bavarian Forest, and the SCH in the middle was in reference to a tunnel or a mineshaft. And that's where the trail went cold, because nobody, the Russians, the Americans, or even the Polish, ever came across a mysterious train just sitting there in the middle of nowhere. Treasure hunters in search of the train believe its destination was intended for Arach, which lay within the region, as there was a radio post and plenty of security there, still. But it never arrived. Instead, local lore states that the train stopped short of its destination, and was buried in the forests near... Uh, Valbjik, Poland, which back then was Waldenburg, Germany. The exact contents of the train changed from legend to legend, varying from a mere ton of gold to, of course, the Amber Room. Part of the problem with verifying an accurate amount is that so many Nazi gold legends are often jumbled together and hybridized. The Nazi gold train happens to be one of the more infamous varietals, and there have been two high-profile searches for its whereabouts. One of these stories conflates the train with the Kaltenbrunner cargo, but the other one revolves around the assets that were overseen by Close. So keep this in mind and try not to get confused. This train story concerns a German treasure hunter and metal detector enthusiast named Hans Gluck, who is pushing 77 years of age as of this year. His travels have taken him across the globe in his constant search for fortune and glory. He's basically everything I aspire to be. In 1995, he was interviewed by Bavaria TV on his illustrious career. And shortly after his segment aired on TV, Gluck was contacted by a mysterious gentleman who claimed to have something that the treasure hunter might find interesting. Sounds like the start of a movie, right? That something turned out to be a treasure map, because sometimes cliches are fun, and this hitherto unmentioned gentleman turned out to be a landowner of a forest near the town of Arak, which straddles the border of Poland. And he had a story to tell. As the tale goes, SS officers stormed into town one night in May of 1945 and sequestered the villagers in their homes, ordering them to bar their doors and shutter their windows, or else. Whatever was happening had something to do with the forest, as Polish slave laborers had been seen going into the woods with a surfeit of ammunition crates. One foolhardy youth snuck into the forest to get a better view of the action, and was later found dead in a clearing, having been shot execution-style in the back of the head. The Polish laborers met the same fate, 
supposedly because dead men tell no tales. They were summarily executed in the middle of the town square a few days after completing this dubious work. Whatever was happening in the forest of Arach was a big deal, and the SS didn't want a word of it leaking out. Which inevitably it did, because not too long after, the Russians swept in and started killing and arresting anybody with Nazi allegiance. One of those captured was an SS officer, who had hidden a map of the location of the gold cargo by sewing the document inside his jacket lining. Before being executed or deported to Siberia, what have you, the soldier entrusted the map to a German prisoner of war named Willi Yankee. Yankee survived, of course, and returned to his home in East Germany. Now, for those of you who don't know, East Germany between the years 1950 and 1989 was not the best place to go around doing weird things in forests, like looking for treasure. By the time the Berlin Wall fell, Yankee was old, and he could not make heads or tails of the map. Before he died in 1995, he passed the map along to the landowner of the forest, who is also frustratingly unnamed in the articles I've turned up. Gluck traveled to the forest and managed to use his equipment to uncover a box containing a portion of a map with seemingly random numbers that may be a type of code. Gluck also believed that the cargo was booby-trapped with mines. Fun. Though he claims to have used a ground-penetrating radar to find a suspicious chamber that might contain something, Gluck has told the press that he cannot dig until the landlord signs away the rights to the treasure to him. Now this seems a bit suspicious for a few reasons, if mostly because the nation of Germany actually has laws where the value of a treasure is split between the discoverer and the landowner equally. So I don't know what's going on here, but until they dig, I don't think Luke has actually found the Nazi gold train cargo. Also because the citizens of Valbjik, a stone's throw over the border in neighboring Poland, believe they have the entire train hidden somewhere underground. How this information snuck into the public consciousness might sound familiar. Again, we have the trope of the captured German soldier, in his 11th hour, supposedly disclosing the whereabouts to a trusted ally. In this version of the tale, the Germans had to abandon the train in a tunnel, and then buried or detonated the entrance until someone trusted could presumably come back and excavate it. Both historians and geologists alike have written this off as a campfire story from the final days of the war. But that hasn't stopped just about everyone from trying to dig up this unspecified fortune. And though there have been numerous accounts of amateurs looking for the train, the biggest lead, if you could call it that, came in August 2015, when the two CEOs of a German mining company came forward with some pretty big news. Peter Koper and Andreas Richter, a Pole and a German respectively, told the press that the train's location had been revealed to them by someone who had confessed on their deathbed. And you better believe I found nothing pointing to the identity of this individual. Starting to see a pattern emerge? Koper and Richter stuck a deal with the Polish government that they would hand over 10% of the treasure train's value to the state if they helped clear the way for excavation. The treasure hunters swear that all of this was supposed to be kept on the down low, until someone within the government blabbed and started the media frenzy. But this frenzy might have actually benefited all parties involved. Long story short, the citizens of Valbjik did end up raking in the gold, from all of the tourism revenue brought in by curious onlookers who hoped to be in the town when they raised the Nazi money train from the depths, and all of the restaurants and hotels who were there to make money off of them. Like Gluck, Cooper and Richter used ground-penetrating radar to plot a possible location of the gold train. The imaging showed a 165-foot deep man-made shaft adjacent to the rail line that would have been used by the Nazis during World War II. This was enough for the government, who deployed explosive experts to ensure that there were no mines or traps in the earth around the future excavation site. To this day, unexploded artillery from World War II is still very much a concern in certain regions of France, Poland, and Germany. Despite outside experts warning the team that surveys had turned up no evidence of a train hidden in a chasm below the earth, Koper and Richter and their team of geologist experts and engineers began digging in August of 2016. All in all, the dig cost $131,000 or 116,000 euros. After a week of fruitless excavation, the team concluded that the structures that the radar had picked up were nothing but naturally occurring ice formations. 
Nevertheless, the people of humble Valbjik were content because they had quite the interesting year when all was said and done. At least they got to walk away with a good story and a 44% increase in tourism. Not too shabby. And for their efforts, Koper and Richter got a roundabout named after them. Do you have a roundabout named after you? No, I didn't think so. And now, for a sad thing. If not buried beneath the earth, then it is possible that Hitler's werewolf funds were carried away by sea, leading to one of the greatest maritime tragedies of the 20th century. Yes, even more so than the Titanic. The reason why the MV Wilhelm Gustloff is not as well known as other ship disasters is depressingly simple. We tend not to have much sympathy towards enemy states or their civilians in times of war, and it's hard to make a big Hollywood epic about a bunch of Germans who died at sea. In short, the Wilhelm Gustloff was built as a luxury ocean liner for the Nazis' Ministry of Recreation, also known as the Strength Through Joy Initiative, which was basically the Third Reich's PR team and vacation task force. As World War II carried on, the Germans, who were at the very least an efficient people, realized that they could put their ships towards more practical efforts, and so they converted the boat into a hospital ship for the war wounded. On the 30th of January, 1945, with the Red Army closing in on East and West Prussia, the Germans launched Operation Hannibal, which featured neither elephants or a nice Chianti. Hannibal was a sweeping exodus of German officials, their families, and other civilians, who were packed aboard the 680-foot-long vessel, which was designed for a capacity of 1,465 passengers among 489 cabins. After historical review, accounting for both listed and unlisted passengers, specifically those who had snuck aboard as frightened stowaways, estimates are that there were 10,582 passengers aboard the Wilhelm Gustloff that winter night. The Nazi officers had tried to make the passage as clandestine as possible. Now, even with a war as brutal as World War II, there were international laws of conduct regarding certain acts of violence, and it was agreed upon by all sides that no one was ever to fire upon a hospital vessel. There was just one problem with the Wilhelm Gustloff. It had been fitted with artillery and cannons, so to any outside observer, it definitely looked like a warship. This proved to be, sadly, the case, as the vessel was picked up on radar by a Russian submarine, the S-13, who tailed the German ship for several miles before deciding it was a combat ship. That night, three torpedoes were launched at the MV Wilhelm Gustloff. The first caused the sealing off of the crew quarters. The second torpedo hit the side of the ship containing the empty swimming pool, which, incidentally, had been converted into the sleeping quarters for the women. The concussive force caused the tiles of the pool to dislodge in rapid succession, turning the tiles into shrapnel, which killed almost 373 women in the pool area. Finally, the third torpedo cut off both power and communications to the outside world. Only nine lifeboats were successfully launched, as within a half hour, the Wilhelm Gustloff was already listing to one side, causing any lowered boats to collide with the side of the ship. Those who jumped fell into water that was 14 degrees Fahrenheit. Within 45 minutes, the ship was sunk, leaving the death toll at 9,400, which is almost six times more than the sinking of the Titanic. It remains the largest loss of life from a shipwreck, not just relative to the 20th century, but all of history. <sighs> okay, let's take a break to go online and look at some pictures of puppies. Okay, all good? Here's where the Nazi gold fits into this incredibly depressing tale. 61-year-old shipwreck diver Phil Sayers made a potentially groundbreaking discovery in 2016 when a chance encounter with a survivor of the MV Wilhelm Gustloff put him on the search for the Reichsgold, not on the heart of the Bavarian forests, but the bottom of the Baltic Sea. 
This story features more rumors from a Nazi survivor, but unlike the other ones in this episode, we can put a name to our informant, who just happened to be the radio operator aboard the Wilhelm, as well as the person who called in the SOS before the communications were cut. This ended up saving 900 of his fellow citizens. On that fateful morning, the MV Wilhelm Gustloff docked briefly in Poland. 17-year-old Rudy Lang went out for a smoke break on the docks, and he watched as his compatriots loaded an unusually well-guarded cargo onto the ship. Of course, at the time, Rudy didn't think much of it, and considering what happened later on in the evening, he probably had other things on his mind that stayed with him in the following decades. Then, in 1972, Rudy made contact with a fellow survivor of the terrible wreck a survivor who happened to be one of the guards who'd kept watch over this mysterious cargo. This gentleman was more than happy to sate Rudy's curiosity. He told him there was gold in those boxes, millions of dollars worth. Rudy, in turn, told Sayers. He said that the gold had been locked up inside Hitler's personal suite, which being the most fortified cabin on deck, served double duty as a strong room to keep valuables. When Sayers explored the wreckage on his dive, he found a cabin with bars across the porthole windows, confirming this detail of the story, at least. Unfortunately, Sayers did not end up going in. And good luck to anyone trying to dive down there to confirm all this. The wreck of the MV Wilhelm Gustloff holds international status as a war grave, outlawing all diving within 500 meters of the ruin. Supposedly, some have tried, because rules are made to be broken, even if they are in memory of thousands of dead people. This includes an attempt by Polish treasure hunters in 2004, which only served to further damage the already broken ship. Though Sayers disclosed all he knew about the downed vessel's cargo, it is, curiously enough, a Lithuanian-American historical fiction writer who can shed further detail on the fate of what was or what may have been salvaged from the depths of the doomed ship. Ruda Sepitis wrote a rousing young adult novel concerning the MV Wilhelm Gustloff's final voyage, a book called Salt to the Sea. And Ruda did serious legwork on this novel. She's a New York Times bestselling author, naturally. Her research led her to an interview with two Soviet divers who had explored the wreckage of the MV Wilhelm Gustloff in the 1960s. The divers were understandably mum on what they had found down there. You know my opinions on the Russians and their love of secrets. Even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, they can sometimes be frustratingly loyal to that old defunct guard. But the divers told Sapitas that they did bring some unspecified things up from the waters, before detonating a portion of the ship with depth charges, presumably because the ship was deemed a hazard for other ships coming through that lane. I suspect they were just trying to cover up their tracks. Whatever they found down there is unlikely to be disclosed, but stranger things have happened. Our fourth lead in this treasure hunt, and perhaps the most dubious claim of all, hypothesizes that the Nazi gold was not hidden in a ship, or on a train, or in a forest, but in music. And if you thought our first three possible locations were crazy, buckle up. 56-year-old Leon Geisen is a Dutch filmmaker and musician, and in 2013, he dropped a major bombshell on the treasure hunting community. Yes, there is a treasure hunting community. That bomb turned out to be a musical score, composed by the German-American musician Gottfried Federlein, called March Impromptu. The score had been acquired by one of Geisen's fellow countrymen, a writer named Karl Hammer Kati, and it wasn't just on any old copy of music, but a folio owned by none other than Adolf Hitler's personal secretary, Martin Bormann. Martin Bormann was one of Hitler's most trusted allies, especially during the Fuhrer's final days. Whereas other SS bigwigs had deserted or been dismissed outright by Hitler, Bormann was entrusted by Hitler to execute his last will and testament. And more importantly, he was to act as a new German leader in exile, which never really came about. During his escape, Bormann was caught up in a Soviet bombing raid and was later discovered dead by his traveling companions. 
But legend has it that Bormann managed to secure the gold intended for the inevitable Nazi resurgence, also known as Operation Werwolf. This secret cache also included, according to Karl Hammer-Kotti, Hitler's personal diamond stash, known as the Tears of the Wolf. And how could you doubt a man whose middle name is Hammer? Now, before you ask me, because that's how podcasts work, there is no historically verifiable evidence that Hitler had a personal diamond hoard, none that I could uncover anyway. Hitler was known in his personal circles as the wolf because he was a bag like that, and tears was sometimes shorthand or coded language for diamonds, but come on, the tears of the wolf? Really? According to Kati and Geisen, Bormann hid the stash of gold and diamonds in Bavaria, like everything else in this dang story. And the way he concealed the location was via a secret code embedded in the musical notes of Federlein's melody. Geisen claimed he had cracked the code, operating off of the hidden instructions contained in the music score. And that mysterious message reads as follows. Wait, I'm really going to read this in German? Wo Matthias die Seiten streichelt, Edelweiss über Schwarzwald, kein Wasser kalt, predigst du Kreuz und Kranz, nur durch die Krone, enden der Tanz. Okay, so now that you've heard me butcher the German language, you're probably wondering what the hell all of that means. So let's try to English that up a bit, line by line. Where Matthias plucks his strings. People think that this refers to a fellow named Luthier Matthias Klotz of Mittenwald. He was a famous violinist, or string plucker. Edelweiss over Schwarzwald is a line that contains a bit of a play on words. Edelweiss is an alpine flower with a name that translates to white nobility, and Schwarzwald is the German word for the Black Forest, a dense forest region near the German border. So this line's clue is white flower over black forest, suggesting a mountainous area within this general vicinity. Kein Wasser kalt, as far as I can tell, means no cold water. Your guess is as good as mine as to what that one means. Predigstuhl literally means pulpit, but generally refers to a kind of mountain or even a proper name for a specific mountain. Kreuz is cross, Kranz is wreath, so in other words, in the pulpit with the cross over the wreath. Though these are all religious symbols, there's probably a double meaning at work here that, once again, suggests a location. Nordos de Krone means north of the crown. Same conclusion as above. And finally, enden der Tanz means the end of the dance. End of the dance, Geisen theorizes, refers to the end of Mittenwald's old railway track. You know, where trains might drop off their depository of evil Nazi wealth. To his credit, Geisen managed to convince the local municipality of Mittenwald to let him dig there, supposedly because anything remotely interesting in a sleepy German town is likely to drum up outsider interest. That's just good business practice. And to further his credit, Geisen's excavation did actually turn up some metals of an indeterminate origin or alloy. Twist. It was aliens. It probably wasn't aliens. So in the end, no gold was found. And this has led skeptics to ask a variety of questions, such as where did Karl the Hammer, Kati, even get his hands on this manuscript anyway? There doesn't seem to be a verifiable answer for that one. And you might be interested to know that Kati is most famous for a very Da Vinci Code-esque thriller that he wrote about the CIA looking for Jesus. So I'm not saying that the story is all a hoax, but it was aliens. Anyways, you can see scans of Hammer's copy of March Impromptu online if you want to draw your own conclusions, or code break, which I always encourage my listeners to do. So far, each of the four purported locations for the Werewolf Gold has turned up nothing but dead ends, or at least nothing any historian can properly verify. Does this mean that the story of the lost Nazi gold is just that, a story? Well, not quite. Buried beneath all of the rumor, speculation, and legend is actual evidence that somewhere out there is a cache of Reichsbank gold waiting to be discovered. 
Not to disappoint those of you who have listened to an entire episode on a conspiracy to fund a Nazi revenge scheme, but the truth is that the real Nazi gold has actually very little to do with Operation Verwolf. But you're here now, so might as well power through it, huh? First, I must credit writer and my new favorite, David McKinty, author of Fortune and Glory, The Treasure Hunter's Handbook, for this brilliantly researched truth about the lost Nazi gold of Germany. As they say at the end of one of my favorite movies of all time, Clue, here's what really happened. In 1945, Joseph Goebbels was the party official responsible for sending the gold assets contained in the reserves of the Reichsbank southward. So this part of the legend is actually true. But the person in charge of carrying out the actual transportation wasn't a famous SS officer or one of Hitler's heavy hitters. That's a really hard sentence to say, by the way. I'm not sure why I wrote that. But simply the chief clerk of the Reichsbank, George Netzband. Accompanied by armed security, Netzband loaded the gold cargo onto a convoy and had it shipped out at night. Goebbels hadn't given Netzband a destination, per se, but the banker deemed the mountains of the Bavarian Alps a secure and safe location to store priceless loot. So that's where he went. The convoy stopped in several towns along the way, including Dresden and Munich, and though they tried to be as undercover as possible, a truck convoy of mysterious cargo is enough to rouse the suspicion of any locals, regardless of their allegiance. This is what may have sown the seeds of those four theories I've already discussed. An inventory of the cargo has it divided among three trucks, amassing 770 gold ingots and 385 sacks of paper currency. When the trucks arrived at the entrance to the Alps, Netzband found that rumors of a secure fortress, or an evil lair in the shape of a giant skull, were highly exaggerated, and decided to go further south to Mittenwald. Here, Netzband and the gold were entrusted to the care of Colonel Franz Pfeiffer, who was in charge of the Alps Brigade in that region. Accompanying him was a colonel who went by the name of Ruger. These two colonels had the treasure moved over to the alpine resort town of Lake Wackensee. It was then driven to a more secure safe house in Einseidel. This place was aptly named the Forest House, and there it could be kept under strict guard and away from the prying eyes of curious villagers. As it became very clear that the Germans were not going to win this war after all, the Forest House in turn became the beacon for SS officials and Nazis all over war-torn Germany who were desperate to whisk their assets away before they fell into American and Russian hands. More gold and more currency was then added to the trove, much to the consternation of George Netzband, who could no longer keep an accurate inventory and had the sword of Joseph Goebbels over his head should he fail to keep the gold safe. This was a feat that was getting harder and harder to accomplish, as whispers went up among the locals in the area that there was serious cash being stored in that weird, creepy house at the end of the lake. Pfeiffer and Ruger decided that they needed to bury the gold where it couldn't be easily found, and they ordered a task force to haul the crates on foot and on the backs of mules into the mountains, among the mountains of Steinreigel and Klausenkopf, the team dug up plank-lined holes in the earth and buried the gold and money among them. But they were just a little too late. A day after this work was completed, the U.S. Army showed up at the doors of the village and rounded up all parties involved with the operation. Netzbond, who was really just a hapless bank teller caught up in Joseph Goebbels' desperate schemes, not a hard-as-nails SS officer, broke down and swore that he didn't know where Ruger had taken the treasure. Though Colonel Ruger was caught, Colonel Pfeiffer managed to slip away and evade capture, leaving his brigade behind to deal with the fallout. Real swell guy, that one. Colonel Ruger was forced to reveal the location of the gold, and his men ended up digging a good fraction of it. And I say fraction because there's a reason they call this the tale of the lost Nazi gold and not the, well, found Nazi gold. Suffice to say, the Americans were told by Pfeiffer's Alpine Brigade that the rest of the gold had been whisked away by an SS platoon and taken across the border into the Austrian state of Tyrol, never to be seen again. But here lies the twist. 
From those documented accounts, we can pick up on the inspirations behind the bits and pieces of the other Nazi gold legends, which, like a German melody, all follow the same beats. There's always a leader making a last-ditch attempt to hide away tons of gold in the mountains of Bavaria, where the efforts of the Allies inevitably cause the gold to be abandoned in an unknown cache with nobody left standing to verify its location. So this leaves just one final motif to uncover the deathbed confession of a former Nazi grunt. Colonel Franz Pfeiffer managed to escape to Argentina and died a natural death in his native lands of Germany, evading the justice of the earthly courts. Many who had knowledge of his evasion wondered how he'd wormed his way out of American hands. In later years, it turned out that he had bribed the Americans into letting him go, because we're easily bought. One has to wonder, where did a desperate German colonel on the lamb manage to get his hands on that kind of money? The brigade that Pfeiffer left behind would go on to face either punishment or absolution in the wake of the armistice. Many of them went on to live full lives. One such gentleman, shortly before dying, you see where this is going, revealed what he and several other members of the Alpine Brigade had done on the night of the 29th of April, 1945. Just before Colonel Ruger and the Americans showed up to dig for the hidden cargo, Pfeiffer and his men took as much gold and banknotes as they could carry in their pockets and had the rest reburied on an unspecified and thus far unknown third mountain. Unfortunately, that's as much detail as we know about this saga. And the Bavarian Alps are in no short supply of massive and very treacherous mountains to explore. To this day, 40 of the gold ingots remain hidden somewhere among them. Compared to the value of the gold listed by some of the more infamous legends, it's hardly millions and millions of dollars worth. But it is something. In 1943, artists, museum staff, and several institutions of art and higher knowledge approached President Franklin Roosevelt with a grave concern. They had heard stories coming out of Germany that Hitler had plans to seize a vast amount of art, artifacts, and treasures from anybody who stood in the path to the establishment of a Third Reich. Under the direction of Francis Henry Taylor, director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the powers that be officially sanctioned the American Commission for the Protection and Salvage of Artistic and Historic Monuments in War Area. Whew. They would eventually go on to adopt the much more abbreviated name of the MFAA, or Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives. But you may know them, thanks to the efforts of a Mr. George Clooney, as the Monuments Men. Their goal was to simply recover and protect objects of value that the Nazis had gotten their grubby little hands on. And they weren't just Americans, either. This was a network comprised of hundreds of men and women from around the world and across Europe. And, thanks to them, some of the greatest works of art were saved from destruction in World War II, including old friends such as the Ghent Altarpiece. They also had plenty of men from the U.S. military out on the watch for any objects of worth they came across during their campaigns. Sadly, a good portion of artwork was lost in the war, and the Monuments Men website maintains a full index of paintings with their last known whereabouts. Though there is a significant amount of distance between World War II and today, there is still plenty of reason to hold out hope that artifacts such as paintings, and yes, Nazi gold, will still be uncovered. In fact, in June of 2017, Authorities working on behalf of Argentina's cultural heritage protection became suspicious when World War II artifacts of note began to go on sale at an antique store in Becar, a suburb of Buenos Aires. The store was operated by a known collector of World War II objects, who had been long suspected of some shady dealings. The authorities discovered inside the shop a false wall leading to a hidden room stocked with Nazi memorabilia, including busts of Adolf Hitler. It is known that many high-ranking Nazi officials fled to Argentina to escape punishment, and so it's more than likely that these artifacts, which included knives, statues, eyeglasses, and cufflinks, belong to one of these individuals. But what's more concerning than someone who would profit off of illicit Nazi works 
is that there's even a market for objects like this in 2018. It's easy to paint the Nazis as evil, and they were, but they would never have considered themselves bad or immoral people. As the Nazis saw it, they were simply carrying out a vision that would ultimately lead to a type of world peace that fit their mold, and that everyone who was against them or their status quo was the true villain that needed to be exterminated. And though we can name check the Himmlers, the Hitlers, the Goebbels, and the Mengele's, we too easily forget all of the thousands upon thousands of German citizens who were either actively complicit in Nazi atrocities or simply chose the easy route of looking the other way and letting events unfold without challenging them. We call this latter approach and the casual way citizens allow those in power to abuse others the banality of evil. It is a political reality and a dark truth that those who believe they are in the right will never admit to being wrong, and it's easy to convince a vulnerable nation, even a nation that was at one time as powerful as Germany, to rise up against a common enemy. Prejudice is an unfortunate primitive instinct that, despite our evolution, we have yet to exercise from our species. And as long as it exists, there will always be a Nazi, no matter what they decide to call themselves, what uniforms they wear, or what flags they fly. So, if your ideology aims to hurt someone, or do away with a subset of the population, then, well, you might just be the perfect candidate for what Heinrich Himmler or Joseph Goebbels had in mind when they came up with Operation Werewolf all of those many years ago. Even in 2018, there are wolves among us. Relic is written and produced by me, Maxwell. The amazing theme music you're hearing was composed by Devin. If you like this podcast and want to stick it to Hitler, you can leave a four or five star rating in iTunes so other people can find out about it. You can also connect to Relic via Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod. If you have any comments, concerns, suggestions, or corrections, please send me an email at losttreasurepod at gmail.com. Our hosting site and blog is relic.blueberry.net. That's blueberry without the E's. Our Facebook group is The Reliquary, the Lost Treasure Podcast group. Next time, the Imperial Forces of Japan justified their bloody conquest of the Pacific as a divine right bestowed upon them by the gods. In the battle for Japan's destiny, two allegedly enchanted swords vanished into the ether, one forged by a man who is later immortalized, and one wielded by none other than an immortal. The adventure continues.